We're so glad that you're here. Go ahead and wrap up that conversation. You guys can uh, continue. If you if you met someone new today, you know you might consider after the service just um, asking if they might be game to go to lunch now. You know that was I just saw a lot of great conversations happening, and I feel guilty ending so many of them. Uh, but anyways, that, that's just how we roll here at Sedaris. You know, conversation is really important to us. Um, it's great to see you. My name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and if you're new with us, we're so happy that you're here. Welcome, welcome. Um, if you brought a Bible today, uh, go ahead and pull it out and open up to Isaiah chapter 53. If you didn't bring one, don't worry. We have some place underneath the seats in front of you. There should be one pretty close. Um, and so uh, when you get a Bible in front of you, open it up to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah is in the Old Testament. Uh, so if you kind of open the Bible up halfway and then go to the right a little bit, you should hit Isaiah. If you're in the Psalms, just keep going right and you'll make it there. And as always, there's just no shame to using the table of contents to find the book of Isaiah. And when you get there, find the big number 53. Isaiah 53 is where we're going to start today. We're actually going to be in a lot of different places today, but this is where we're going to start. So, um, so yeah, welcome, guys. Welcome. Um, well, if you've been tracking with us so far this year, you will know that we've been in a sermon series going through the, the book of 1 Corinthians. That's our typical MO here at Sedaris. We pick a book of the Bible and we work through it over the course of several months. Um, and we're about five chapters through the book of 1 Corinthians uh, through the first three months or so of the year. But we're actually pushing pause on that series for the next three weeks um, because we really want to lean into um, the, not just Resurrection Sunday on Easter, but the events surrounding Resurrection Sunday as well. And, and because these events are equally crucial to the Christian faith, and so we kind of want to lean into them in order. Uh, what are those events? Well, the thing that happened before Jesus was raised from the dead, he died on the cross, and so we're going to focus on that this week. Next week uh, is Resurrection Sunday, Easter, so we're going to focus on unpacking resurrection together next week. And then the week after that is something that uh, the Western church typically uh, becomes a footnote which is ascension, the, 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 when Jesus uh, just started levitating and going into the sky and then disappeared. That's called ascension. It makes us a little uncomfortable to talk about it because we're like, what's that about? We're going to give it its own week to live in, the week after Easter, uh, Ascension Sunday. Um, all three of these things are so crucial to the Christian faith. They're, they're so crucial. And depending on your background, um, you may have grown up um, in a Christian setting, or maybe even if you're a new Christian, this may have already begun to happen in your life, where one of these things is emphasized, and, and the other ones might be sitting the back seat. But it's really important in the Christian life that all of these come into the front seat. All of these things drive your life in a certain sense. And so what we're going to do is really just go each week. We're going to do cross. We're going to do resurrection. We're going to do ascension. And so I'm really eager to do this uh, with all of you with the cross uh, this week. Um, now, you might say, well, I don't know what's all the fuss with these other things, Ryan. Uh, we were in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says that if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, your faith is futile. So isn't, isn't that the most important thing? And, and actually, all three of these things, you can say, you, you can use that phrase with all three of these concepts. If Jesus didn't die on the cross, like if he swooned, like the Islamic faith uh, says and, and claims, um, then we will have believed in vain and our faith is futile. And similarly, if, if Jesus uh, didn't ascend back to heaven and he's just hiding out in a cave uh, somewhere, then um, your faith is in vain as well. And, and we won't be able to tap in. Like, like if those things don't, aren't true as well, we don't have access to the powerful gospel and uh, it, it breathing meaning back into our, uh, into our lives and power back into our lives. And so that's why we're going to focus on all three of these, okay? So that's just a long-winded way of saying, buckle up, this is going to be quite the ride. Because these are three big events, and uh, what better way to do it than by starting on Holy Week. So I'm excited to do this with you guys. Today, we're in the cross. We're in the cross today. We're going to be unpacking the power tied to Jesus' death on the cross but before you tune out, because you know the cross already, I, I want to invite you into the tension that I call familiar theology. Okay? Familiar theology. Uh, what is this? Um, this is uh, teaching about God or theology about uh, God that is so familiar to us that it's a bit like our family of origin or our roommates. 
Um, you know, if you think about your family of origin, you grew up around your, your siblings and your parents to the sense that you kind of know them. You kind of have a good idea of, of what they're about, what they think, what they do. You, you just kind of know them. Same with like a, a roommate that you had or, or have right now. You, you, you know this person. You talk to them all the time. You see them all the time. You know their patterns. You are familiar with these people. And, and, and sometimes you can be surprised by them. Or in a certain sense, you think you know them, but then all of a sudden something comes out that is completely jarring and surprising and unclear, and it's like, whoa. And sometimes that can even strain a relationship. Sometimes these relationships can just spark up and explode, can't they? I mean, I've had, anybody had fights with their parents before as an adult? That's kind of intense, right? Like, I thought I knew you. I thought you knew me. Why are we on different wavelengths here? They can just, boom, it can explode. You see, when... When people become familiar to us, we tend to make assumptions that we have them figured out, and we stop paying close attention to them, which actually can put our relationship with them, our friendships, in a precarious position. And, and Christians do this all the time with the cross and with the resurrection. It, this happens a, a lot. And, and on, on one sense, it's like, why make a fuss about that? Isn't it great that we're familiar with the cross and the resurrection? Like, isn't that like the whole goal of the Christian faith is to become familiar with things? Like, why are we making a fuss about this? Well, when the cross, the resurrection, the, the ascension become familiar, meaning we no longer approach them with like a sense of curiosity. We, we no longer approach them with this sense of, of wonder and, and, and eagerness of, of, or even like a, an expectation to find something new. Um, we can fall into a couple of ditches in life that actually kind of remove us from the joy of the gospel. And if you're anything like me, you've spent time in both of these ditches in your life. Um, the, the first ditch is, is the one I call easy believism. What is easy believism? Um, it's when the cross, the, the resurrection, the ascension, among other like historical details that we find in the Bible and other Christian teaching, when they become um, so familiar to us that they're just kind of blindly accepted without much questioning. Um, the attitude is generally, uh, the Bible says it's true, and so it must be true. Okay, And, and in one sense, that's a great attitude to have about the Bible, but in, in another sense, uh, easy believism, or it can really result from people just wanting to be in a community. And so there's this sense of which, like, you know, I really want to be a part of this community, but I get to, I really don't want to ruffle any feathers as I jump into this community. Um, and so I'm just going to go along with what everybody is saying. And sure, I'm going to nod my head. I'm going to say the right answers. Um, and, and it's going to go great for me. Now, we have another phrase for this here at Sedaris called repressive dogmatism. Yikes. What this means is when you take your questions, your objections, and you just kind of push them down. You just say, I have these, but I don't want to cause any waves. I definitely don't want people to think less of me. I'm just going to push them down in my life. I'm going to just ignore them. I'm going to leave them way down there. And the only problem with that is that as you lean into repressive dogmatism more and more in your life, eventually, and we're all kind of young, so we, we might not see this playing out in our lives yet, if this is true of us, eventually it turns into suppressive dogmatism, where when you see other people's questions and objections and, and wrestlings come up, you want to push those down as well. Why? Well, because you're insecure, because you haven't gone there and, and wrestled there yourself, and so repressive dogmatism can turn into suppressive dogmatism, and, and that's no fun for anybody. That's the first ditch. The second ditch captures um, a somewhat opposite attitude, and, and that's cynicism. Cynicism. Now, now, now cynicism, I, I'd say, is typically a step or two beyond just like doubts or um, skepticism. Like those are good and those are healthy and those are part of the Christian faith and, and they're there for a reason. Um, it, but cynicism is more like a dismissive skepticism or, or like a stubborn, contrarian attitude um, that, that is an open to discussion. Sometimes at Sedaris we call this um, willful agnosticism, where agnosticism is just this notion of, you know, there's, there, there's probably a God, but even if there is, I can't really know much 
about them and, and what they're up to, what they're like, what they're trying to accomplish in this world, and which is actually a very incredibly convenient position to hold, which is why we call it willful. Because if we say there's not much to know about God, then all of a sudden we're not really on the hook to live our lives in any certain way. So it's, it's an incredibly convenient position to hold. And, and, and so we say, you know, as long as I'm not hurting anybody else, like that, that's how I'm going to live my life. Now, now this in turn can really divorce us from just the power of the gospel. All this, Jesus showed up and he had things to say to us. This Bible comes to us and says, this is who God is, and, and this is how you can actually lean into the power of God. Now, thankfully, there is a middle way, which you've probably guessed by now. It's engagement with this familiar theology. It's defamiliarizing ourselves with this familiar components of the gospel defamiliarizing ourselves with the cross, with the resurrection, with the ascension, with other things. It's, it's allowing ourselves to be pushed off kilter and kind of been like, wait a sec, this says that? It, could this be true? Whenever you come to a point in the Bible where you're asking the question, could this be true? Like how, or how is this true? You've arrived there. You've defamiliarized yourself with these big things which is great. We, here at Sedaris, we call that consideration. Consideration of Jesus. Where, where we're rolling up our sleeves and we're getting into the meat and kind of the guts of the scriptures and the things that God is up to in the world and, and inviting us to be a, a part of with him. And, and if, if you're comfortable with, with the Jesus of your imagination, like if he's a pretty docile guy, if he's a pretty agreeable guy, if you think, him, if you think you have him figured out like your immediate family, he might be familiar to you. He might be familiar to you. And when he shows up again, that means you might be in for a little bit of a surprise. And the goal of, of the Christian and of the church is we're really hoping that when Jesus shows up, we're not too surprised. Like, we're all going to be pretty surprised at some level. Like, we don't really know exactly what that's going to look like. But we don't want to be too surprised. The people of his day were really surprised at what this Messiah actually looked like. And it's our prayer that that doesn't happen again in his second coming. Consider Jesus' friends. Now, what's at stake? Not just some future, oh, shoot, I don't want to be caught with my pants down. When you consider Jesus, it becomes like truly lean into wonder, curiosity, expectation of something being revealed to you. The Christian walk becomes a thrill. It becomes really, really exciting. You see, this is one of the, the, the big objections to, to the Christian faith. It often is, Christianity, that sounds boring. If I were to actually consider being a Christian, that means my Sundays are going to be boring. The Christian faith is going to be boring. My life's going to be boring, but in fact, the, the opposite's entirely true. When you lean into the, the Christian faith and what Jesus tells us about himself, what God tells us about himself, uh, how, how the apostles unpack what life is to look like and how we're supposed to live it, it becomes really fun. It becomes a thrill, even a little bit risky at times. I don't know if there's any thrill seekers in the audience. So, so, to, to some of us, that terrifies us, and so the, the challenge is there for us, like, wait, hold on a sec. You want to push me off kilter? You want me to kind of take risk? You want this to be a thrill? I don't know if I'm up for that. That's okay if you're there. That's okay if you're there. The beauty of it is that this gospel is so amazing, so thrilling itself, that when we truly catch glimpses of it, we're willing to go, what we call here at Sedaris, just one step beyond comfortable. Take one step towards thrill. You don't have to dive in head first. That's okay. That's not what we're asking you to do here today. <laughs> Maybe one step beyond comfortable today is you just considering that the Christian faith can be a thrill for you. It can be fun. It can be exciting. It can be a little bit risky. So that's what we're going to be doing today. That, that's enough by way of introduction. We're going to be doing the cross today. Um, and I hope to invite you into how it's a thrill and how it can lead to God, God's power working in our lives today. And we're going to look at three things today. And we're going to go through a lot of scripture because um, the cross is a big thing. And we're going to look at three things. Um, that Jesus was crushed on the cross uh, that, that Satan was crushed by the cross, and that the veil in the Holy of Holies, the Jewish temple, was torn. Or if you really loved crush language, the barrier between God and man was crushed. 
Okay, so those are the three things we're going to look at, and those could be three sermons in and of themselves. So this might be like drinking like a, a fire hydrant for you as we lean into this subject today. That's okay. You, might, you will probably leave with more questions than you showed up with. That's completely fine. It's kind of my goal to defamiliarize all of us with this, to kind of push us out of, off kilter a little bit. That's kind of how we operate here at Sedaris. You might think, that's a little bit backwards from what a sermon should do, shouldn't answer my questions. We do that as well. Just come back next week. I think we're going to have a lot of answering. But, but, uh, but we're going to lean into this together, okay? So uh, get your Bible. Uh, we're in Isaiah 53, where we really see this Old Testament prophecy surrounding Jesus being crushed. Why was he crushed? To take the penalty for sin, or if you prefer the familiar theological term, atonement. I almost didn't even use it because it makes us roll our, both the cynic and the easy believer kind of roll our, our turn our brains off and say, oh, I know what this is all about. I know I have atonement figured out, but you don't, okay? You don't. It is, a, it is a bottomless well, the atonement of Christ. Okay, so, so let's look at this, uh, Isaiah 53, and let's back up a few verses, actually, to Isaiah 52. I was just trying to pull a couple of these verses out this week uh, so that we could get through it um, quickly, but it's all so, so good. So this is one of the most famous passages in Isaiah uh, that's called a suffering servant passage. Isaiah has four of these suffering servant passages, actually, that really look towards this Messiah figure for Israel that's going to suffer on behalf of the people. This is probably the most popular one here. Uh, 52.13, so it goes like this. See, my servant, this is God speaking, will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were... Uh, appalled at you, his appearance was so disfigured that he did not look like a man, and his form did not resemble a human being. So he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkling is a reference to blood in the Hebrew scriptures. Kings will shut their mouths because of him, for they will see what had not been told them, and they will understand what they had not heard. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him, this is the servant, like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, nor appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. All right, here's where we really start to see this nature of what this servant's going to do. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, as struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like, like sheep and have turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity or, or sin of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a, a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. He was taken away because of oppression and judgment. Who considered his fate? For he was cut off from the land of the living. He was struck because of my people's rebellion. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he was with a rich man at his death because he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. Yet... The Lord was pleased to crush him severely. When you make him a guilt offering, he will see his seed, he will prolong his days, and by his hand, the Lord's pleasure will be accomplished. After his anguish, he will see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will carry their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him the many as a portion. He will receive the mighty as spoil because he willingly submitted to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels or those rebels. Now, this is a beautiful passage. And I tried to highlight it as I read it to you, but there, there's just this irony that, that, that jumps off the page at you, as you read this a few times over, you have this situation where, where the Israelites are having this servant killed because they think he's at odds with God, even though he's righteous, right? And that's what it says in, in verse 4, that he's righteous, he's, he's, he's a stand-up, he's, he's, um, he's, he's bearing their pains, he's serving them, he's carrying their, their sicknesses. 
But then they count him as stricken, as someone who needs to be killed by God. Like, oh yeah, God showed up and took care of that guy. That's really strange. And, and as you read it, you're kind of confused. You're like, why would they think this about this guy? And, and surely God doesn't want to, to strike this guy and, 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 and crush this guy. Then you get to verse 10, and it just kind of drops like a brick. And the Lord was pleased to crush him severely. What? So God did kill him, and, and he was pleased to do it? Why? Well, the answer's in the next line. Because he made him a guilt offering, which means that he was meant to carry the sin of others, even those who were the rebels going against him. He's meant to carry the sin of others and experience God's crushing judgment and wrath for it. That's why this passage closes the way that it does. He carried it, and God crushed him for it. That's the cross. Now, and let's be clear, God is the one who crushed him. God is the one who crushed him, is what this is telling us here. And in John 19, John says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he's on the cross, he's about to die, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Gave up his spirit. It is finished. What is he talking about there? He's talking about all of redemption history, not just the t- his time on the cross, not just his life, all of redemption history is going back all the way to Genesis chapter 3. Wraps up with God pouring his wrath out on him on the cross. And once all the wrath has been absorbed, he says, it's finished. And then he dies. He absorbed it all in his body. You see, the cross just wasn't an execution instrument. Like we have execution instruments nowadays, like lethal injection, electric chair, all these things in different countries, including the United States. It's not just an execution instrument, it's a torture instrument. The cross is meant to be a spectacle that, that these people would be tortured upon for several days, sometimes weeks. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus was crucified with these two uh, criminals. The Jews didn't want these people, this kind of offended, kind of their notion and interpretation of the law to have, have people hanging on the cross over the Sabbath. And so Jesus was actually crucified the day Sabbath would start at evening, and he was crucified that morning. And so the Jews say, hey, can we break their legs so that this kind of torture process is hurried up because we don't want them to be on the cross? And so they break the other legs of the other two criminals, and then they come to Jesus, and they're like, hold up. This guy's already dead. And they're surprised. Surprised, because Jesus was actually taking more than just the torture of the cross. He was experiencing the wrath of God. God crushed him on the cross. God crushed him. They were surprised how quickly he died. You see, Jesus didn't die on the cross to save us from our sin. That's true, but it's not precise enough. He, he died on the cross to save us from God's crushing, which is the penalty for sin. God's, uh, Peter put it like this in, in 1 Peter 2. We'll put it on the screen for you. Peter put it like this. He says, you are, you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example that you should follow in his steps. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. He's quoting Isaiah 53 there. For you are like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The Gospel of John is great as well because John, uh, he recounts the life of Jesus, but he's writing much, much after the other three Gospels were written. And he sees like the places where people were reading the previous Gospels and getting hung up and so he, or, or misunderstanding. So he inserts all these editorial notes into uh, his Gospel of John. He, he puts this up in, in, at the end of chapter three. He says, uh, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. Now, this is, the wrath of God is a heavy subject. This is one of the ways that I'm pushing a little bit off center here to contemplate this God who, who says, I love humanity, but also has wrath 
for humanity, apparently, that he's storing up. What are we to do here? I'm not going to answer that question necessarily for you today, but that's something that we need to continue to wrestle with as we defamiliarize the the gospel of Jesus and and the cross. But, But did you see, God spoke through the Hebrew scriptures saying, I'm going to do this powerful thing of atoning for people's sin by, by crushing my servant. And then in the Gospels, we see, okay, that happened. And then the, the apostles are writing after words are saying, see, it happened just like God said it would. The question is, did God really have to do it like this, though? Like this? Easy believism would say something like, yes, God wants us to know that sin's a big deal, which is true in some sense. It's kind of a pat answer. There's much more depth to trying to answer this question. Cynicism would probably say something like this. Uh, Perhaps you've heard this objection before. Um, This is nothing more than just cosmic child abuse. Maybe you've heard that before. That's a a cynic's response to the wrath of God killing Jesus on the cross. These aren't great responses to a great question. Why did God have to do it this way? Why did God have to do it this way? It seems like really gory, really intense. What's the deal here? We don't have time to answer that question today, but I'll let you know that if you honestly wrestle with it, lean into it, it will thrust you into a journey of, of the character of God, into his scriptures, into the Old Testament sacrificial system, even the nature of how blood works and what it represents and the created order. And but I'll give you a place to start. If you go to Hebrews chapter 9, verses um, 11, I think is where it starts, all these concepts are brought together to begin to wrestle with this question, which tells us something. This is a question that has been honestly and faithfully wrestled with for a long, long time. And when we wrestle with it, it can lead to life, even though it might be discomfort, even though it might feel a little risky, even though I'm inviting you to maybe consider it a thrill to ask these intense questions of the scriptures. Throw yourself into the scriptures to try to see if you can figure them out. Throw yourself into community to try to see if you can have conversations about them. But this is what we can take away today. Jesus um, bearing and caring, bearing and caring our sin on the cross brought, um, this atonement, it brought reconciliation, which means it powerfully fixes our relationship with God. In, in, in Romans 5.10, Paul says, we are reconciled to God through the death of his son. First Peter he, he, he says it like this. He says, Christ suffered for sin once and for all on the cross. Why? That he might bring you to God. The, the cross brings us to God again, which is to say God crushing Jesus on the cross brought peace where there was a fight. You ever been in a fight with somebody? Not just like in the moment, but that's lasted for days. You ever, you ever, you ever had that? Do you, you know how good it feels when you finally come back together and make up? Maybe married couples feel this sometimes. You can feel this with friends as well. I mean, you know how good it feels to actually come back together? And and this is the the existential relief that the cross brings humanity, between humanity and God. It's it's beautiful. This is uh, the the entire Old Testament. Look at this. I mean, it's like two-thirds of your Bible. What's happening in here? God and humanity are in a fight, and it's not going well. And over and over and over again, it gets intense and tense and tense, and it kind of gets a little bit better, but it never really gets fully better. And then Jesus comes on the scene, and at the cross, reconciliation happens, and we can be brought to God again. It completely changes it. Now, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for us? Um, pastorally, I find that everybody has that one sin, that one thing that you did or didn't do in the past maybe for a season in your past, stay, stay in your past with me, that one thing. I find that uh, so many people, almost everybody, has this one thing that they're like, they're not exactly certain if they can find forgiveness for that thing. The cross says, absolutely, there's forgiveness there for you for that. Absolutely. Read Isaiah 53. There's, there, there's no hierarchy of sins that can and, and can't be applied at the cross. Irregardless of what the sins are, they're taken care of here. And on the one hand, perhaps you need to be encouraged and told, uh, don't worry about it. You are forgiven. And, and on the other hand, there's a question that goes like this. Someone asked this of me once, which is revolutionary. What makes you think you're so special that your sin can't be accounted for by the death of Christ? I was kind of taken aback. I was like, dude, I'm like struggling with guilt. And they're like, no, you're struggling with, you, you think you're special. And I was like, I guess you're right. 
What makes you think you're so special that Christ's blood can't be applied to you? The scriptures say that it can be applied to everybody. See, this is a beautiful and powerful, powerful element of the cross. We have to keep moving, though. We have to keep moving. Um, oh, this is, this is how they put it. Why must you continue to crucify yourself when he's already been crucified for you? I just love that. I love that. Um, there's more we could say with regards to this. Um, but yeah, we have to keep moving here. Um, so the, the cross, Jesus was crushed as a guilt offering. And then second, um, God crushed Satan by way of the cross. God crushed Satan. Um, people can blindly go along with this statement as well as be cynical about it as well, um, in a lot of different ways, actually. But, but one of the main ones is, uh, uh, did you know that more people believe uh, that God is a being than Satan is a being? Like, more people are willing to get on board with, okay, like, yeah, I can get on board with God, like, sure. But Satan? Nah, not, not really. And our, our cynical culture kind of makes these pictures of a, a, a little guy with pitchfork and the horns, right? To just kind of make fun of just the notion that, that this is a real spiritual being. And then on the other hand, you know, easy believism can just quickly accept the fact that there's this dark ringleader of, of tens of thousands of of fallen angels called demons that are kind of bent on and set on making our lives miserable. But I'm going to invite you to consider it deeper with me in light of the scriptures, in light of the cross, because when we do that, there's this beautiful and really powerful element of, of what we see taking place on the cross that brings us victory now, even as we continually fall short. Okay, so it's very, very applicable, very, very helpful, very beautiful. Um, so let's dive into it a little bit and just give a little bit of basis of who this Satan is. He enters the, the biblical narrative just after the beginning in the book of Genesis. Okay? And it's there that he takes the form of a, of a snake and uh, successfully tempts um, Adam and Eve to rebel against God and, and consider good and evil on their own. That's kind of what taking fruit from the tree of, good, of the knowledge of good and evil is. It's like, you can figure out good and evil on your own. You don't need God for that. that. That's the temptation. They say, you know what, you're right. And if we do that, we can be like God in the world. You know, we can, we can set a morality all for ourselves. And so that happens, and then the creation breaks, and God comes back into the garden, and, and he circles everybody together, and says, well, we gotta have like, gotta have a talk here. And, and we can forget that Satan is part of that talk. And this is what God says to the serpent in that talk. is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14. It goes like this. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. You will strike his heel. So here... In the first couple paragraphs of the Bible, we have reference to this cross event, this battle. This battle that, that's going to come down to a, a point. And, and you might say, hold up, hold up, hold up. This is really just talking about how humans and, and snakes are just, they don't like each other that much, right? Like, like you see a snake, you don't like that. Snake sees you, apparently he doesn't like you either, right? Like, this is what it's talking about. Well, actually, when you look through uh, Genesis 3, this passage we just read, all of the, 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 that word offspring... It's singular. You know, we can kind of use it in the English language to mean, uh, if I talk about my offspring, you don't know if I have one daughter or three daughters until I tell you that I have three, and it's a plural, right? But in the Hebrew, it's very clear. Oh, this is a singular use, use of, of the word. This is all about a showdown that's going to happen between the serpent and a descendant of Eve. A descendant of Eve. They're going to get into it, and the serpent's going to strike his heel, and, and he's going to crush his head. And that's what the Jews knew. The Jews knew that. That was the great Jewish hope. This is the great Jewish hope that Christianity says Jesus Christ fulfilled. And, and our gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is, it's really interesting. In each of these accounts, they're explicitly pointing to Satan's work of getting Jesus to the cross, getting him handed over through Judas, getting him convicted, getting him uh, actually uh, put up on the cross and nailed to it. While God may have crushed Jesus on the cross, Satan is the one who's responsible for putting him up there, for getting him up there in the first place. And he had no idea that it would be his defeat, even though Jesus told the crowd just a couple days beforehand that that's exactly what was going to happen. 
This is in John chapter 12. It's kind of this crazy thing that happens in the last week um, of Jesus' life. He says, now my soul is troubled. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that's why I came to this hour. So, so Jesus is kind of uh, contemplating. He's kind of throwing a, he's, the crowds are listening to him. He's, he's teaching. They're asking him questions. Um, and, and then he kind of shouts up this, this prayer to God. Uh, Father, why, what should I say? Father, save me from this hour, but that's why I came for this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. This is in the final week of Jesus' life. The crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus responded, this voice came, not for me, but for you. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. As for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. So Jesus tied his death to the ruler of the world being kicked out. And John made very, very clear. He said, Jesus is talking about being lifted up, but, but don't misunderstand here. We're not talking about his resurrection. We're talking about his death. We're talking about his death being lifted up on the cross. He's talking about the way that he died. Not when he was resurrected. He's tying Satan being defeated to the cross. To the cross. Well, how can his death defeat Satan? That's a big question, right? Well, this kind of seems like Satan won here. So how does his death defeat Satan? And to answer that question, we, we go to Colossians. And we did a sermon series in Colossians um, a couple years ago. It was a really fun sermon series. You can go back and listen to it. But, but uh, we did a whole sermon on how the cross is the defeat of Satan. And I'll just pull out a couple verses here. Paul says, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he's talking to the church here, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligation that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. You see, God is victorious over Satan. Yay, that's great. But did, did you catch it? Did you see how exactly that happened? Well, Satan, when you read about him in the scriptures, you find that he actually doesn't have that much power at all. You know, he's very clearly limited in what he can do. And so while he does have a, a personal vendetta against God and anything created in his image, that's you and I, um, he actually can't do anything to them unless God allows him to do it. This is seen primarily in the book of Job. And he, he clearly can't kill them. He clearly can't. And, and so this is what he, he does. He says, I know what I can do. I can create a scenario where humanity is put at odds with the holiness of God. And then he can do it. And then he can do it. I mean, that's Satan's entire plan. That's his entire plan. I'll, I'll, I'll get them at odds with each other. I know that, that God's perfect manifest presence, we'll talk about it in a few minutes, it cannot be in the same place as imperfection. That's why I'm down here on earth to begin with. It cannot be in the same place and it will consume them. So that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. And he's successful in this in Genesis chapter 3. And then he gains the basis for that accusation. He's created a scenario in which we cannot live around God. That's the basis for his, uh, his accusation against humanity. That's why he's called the accuser. Look, they're guilty. They're guilty. And it's true. But what do we just talk about happened on the cross? Paul says all of the, he says the debt with its obligations, that's, that's, those are the things that are against us. The accusations against us, those are nailed to the cross and taken care of. And he ties it to the spiritual forces of darkness, the powers and principalities. So when he uses those words, he's, always, he's, not, he's not talking about like the, the, the human rulers uh, that, that, that be. He's talking about spiritual forces that are ruling the world. He says those things have been triumphed over by the cross. Satan no longer has that accusational power over us. Humans are no longer in bondage to sin. Satan was crushed by the cross. Now, you might say, that doesn't match my experience. 
I still feel accused all the time. I feel shameful often. And, and well, spiritual forces of darkness still do accuse and shame the people of God, but the only difference now is they actually have no correct basis for it. It's gone. The, the, the power of, of, of Satan has been altogether crushed. Why does this matter? Why, why, why does this matter for us? Well, if, if we talked about how the atonement really deals with past sin, Satan being crushed on the cross really helps us deal with present sin in our lives. Where do you need victory in life? Where are you being accused over and over and over again? Godly guilt is good. It's often a play, like God does use guilt to show us, hey, we need to grow in this area of our lives. But ongoing shame and over all of this, that's from the accuser. Don't let the enemy get you down. Don't give up the fight. Shame is one of his big weapons that he uses now. You see, Satan being defeated by way of the cross... It's a picture of how we can take the efforts of the enemy and turn them into God-glorifying goodness. It's what's typically called the frustration of Satan. The cross is the, the, the quintessential picture of how Satan works so hard to kill, 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 kill humanity, gets Jesus on the cross, puts God on the cross to kill him, and then all of a sudden it turns into his greatest undoing, shoots himself in the foot. That's the frustration of Satan and his purposes. Satan put Jesus there, but when he did, God accomplishes his own purposes that he hopes to accomplish in the world. Uh, Joseph said it like this. Um, way back in, in Genesis chapter 50, his brothers sold him into slavery. Um, I've, I've, got, I've been at odds with my brothers, but never to that level before. He gets sold into slavery. A couple years later, he, his brothers come into, into his presence and he looks at them and he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What the accuser means for evil in your life, God means for good. What will happen to you is, is you, you take your, your, your darkest sin, perhaps, and as you lean into it and, and you confess it to God and you confess it to people and you roll up your sleeves and you try to, find it, try to fight it, as you lean into it more and more and more, what you'll experience is the grace of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. That's what he does when we bring our, our darkness into light with him. He redeems it and he empowers it and he lifts you up and he, and, and he sends you out into the world as his conduit for glory. When you say, I once was like this, but now I'm no longer like this because of the grace of God. Praise be to him. That's what God does with us. That's what he does. And if we faithfully lean into this, it's a hard thing to do. I understand. What you will see is God partner with you to bring glory into this world like you've never seen before through the hardest parts of your lives. That's all because of the power of the cross. All because of the power of the cross. So Jesus was crushed on the cross. Satan was crushed by the cross. And the third thing that happened by way of Jesus' death on the cross is that the veil was torn, or that the barrier between humans and God was crushed. Um, the Romans tortured and killed people on the cross a lot uh, for like 500 years. And so Jesus' death actually isn't all that unique. It's not all that unique. What, what, what's more is... Um, in the, you know, the, the decades leading up to Jesus' death, there actually emerged these Jewish messianic figures uh, in and around Jerusalem who would, would raise up, claim to be a, a kingly figure over the Jews, and they'd get a band together, they'd, they'd, not this kind of band, like a band of rebels together, start making noise and waves in the world, and then the Romans would catch wind of it, and they'd crucify him. So Jesus' death isn't all that um, unique. There, there, there are plenty of Jewish revolutionaries killed by way of the cross, around that time. But what is unique are the events surrounding his death. And um, Matthew uh, records this for us in chapter 27. He puts it like this. He says, uh, But Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly the curtain of the sanctuary was torn in two. This is right at his death. From top to bottom, the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. The tombs were also opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And they came out of the tombs after his resurrection, entered the holy city, and appeared to many. And the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened. They were terrified and said, truly this man was the son of God. So what we have here is this in... Pretty crazy stuff going on here. 
we have this veil being torn top to bottom. Uh, this is, uh, in essence, what's happening here is God's manifest presence is coming into the world again. Just like it was in the garden when, when he was around Adam and Eve. This is the unleashing of God's manifest presence into the world, world again. And I, you have to use that word manifest. I use it very intentionally because God is present everywhere. This is one of, one of the teachings of the Christian faith, that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He sees everything. He is everywhere. But his manifest presence is not exactly everywhere. This is this tension we see in the Old Testament where God's manifest presence shows up and like crazy stuff happens. People think they're going to die. That's his manifest presence coming. And, and his manifest presence, we, we preached through the book of Exodus last year, uh, it shows up in the form of this pillar around the Israelite community that leads them in the wilderness, this, this pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night, and the, uh, the second half of the whole book of, of Exodus is all about what do we do with this manifest presence? It's pretty crazy. So they build this tabernacle, and, and there's this holy of holies within the regular holy place where the priests do their job, and, and then this manifest presence comes, and it dwells within the holy of holies, and then it goes up where they need to go, and they follow it away. This is the manifest presence. That, this is the, kind of the same space within the Hebrew temple. The Hebrew temple is a, it's kind of a, a copy of the, the, um, the tabernacle of sorts. It's, it's more like a, a similar thing, but there's a holy of holies in it that's separated with a veil from where the priests would do their regular work. And, and this veil we saw in, in Exodus, there's so much description about how fine of linen this is, how many things were embroidered into it with gold and, and stuff like this. It's, this is like a beefy, hunky piece of material that was really expensive as well. And what does God do? He rips it top to bottom, kind of like, you ever seen those phone book things with, with the huge beefy guy that just rips a phone book in half? This is, this is God ripping a phone book that really no one else can ever do. And he comes into the world he gets unleashed into the world. The story of God, scriptures, are all about making his manifest presence come back to earth. You take nothing away from that, from, from this morning, take that away. This whole book is about God's presence coming back to earth and dwelling. It's the, it's the whole focus of, of the Old Testament. It's what Christ came to do and accomplish on the cross. And it's how it, it sums up at the end. Heaven coming to earth in Revelation chapters 20, 21, 22. Heaven coming to earth. Not earth getting out of here and going to heaven. God's manifest presence coming into our reality. His heavenly realities invading our earthly realities. Jesus called it his kingdom. The kingdom, oh no, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Invasion isn't too strong of a word here. We're talking about kingdom invading this. Wow, it's intense. The veil was torn. It's hard for us to understand exactly what veils mean, but we kind of get a glimpse at weddings. This is kind of a bride would wear a veil all the way up until you may now kiss the bride. Historically, we don't do that anymore so much, but that's fine. It's fine. What I'm trying to say is the veil is meant to be a thing that says our relationship isn't full yet. There, there's parts of our relationship and that, that we can't fully experience yet until we're married, and the veil is meant to signify that, okay? And then you lift it and kiss the bride. We're full in full relationship. The same thing's happening here in the temple. This veil means we can't fully experience one another, how we were meant to experience each other, how we're called to experience each other uh, as well. But the cross means that it fixed it that it worked, that, that, that God tore it down the middle. And, and this picture here is pretty crazy. It, it, it doesn't, this picture of the veil being torn, it doesn't mean that we can go to God anytime we want. Although that's true, and, and you can go to other places in the Bible to, to see that and, and see that incredible truth that you have access to God no matter what, whenever you want. That's incredible. This veil being torn reality says God's on the loose. He's come out into creation. He is he's on the move, and he is, is impacting people, and he's bringing life to them. Contrary to death, the manifest presence of God shows up, and it's bringing life to people. People raising from the dead, and Matthew's like, I'm not just being metaphorical about this. Other people saw them. God's presence, manifest presence, which did bring death, is now bringing life. That was accomplished through the cross. That was accomplished through the cross. God is on the loose. God is on the loose. 
Now, there's lots of components to this, uh, which we'll flesh out more when we lean into the ascension, actually. Um, but this is an inauguration of a new age. That's what happens on the cross. The veil being torn, inauguration of a new age. Because, um, why is it so important to flesh out? But, because where Jesus being crushed on the cross, he ensure, it ensures that we have been saved and we have been forgiven. Um, and Jesus uh, and Satan being crushed by the cross is, it ensures us that, that, that we are being saved and we are being forgiven as, even as we continue to fall short. Uh, this inauguration of a, new days is, uh, of a new age gives us the confidence that we will be fully forgiven, that we will be fully saved. And so the Christian, in a certain sense, is always saved, being saved, and will be saved. That's what the cross tells us. That's what the cross tells us. And, and with this will being saved, moment. We have talked about sin and forgiveness from, from past sin and present sin, but as we look towards a new age, what we actually find is empowerment to live a godly, beautiful, life-giving life. And the author of Hebrews brings that together perfect for us in Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, so the first nine and a half chapters of Hebrews are all about the cross, like who Jesus is and what the cross was and how it ties Old Testament history and why it's, why it's important. And now we kind of have a, this therefore in the book of Hebrews, there's lots of therefores, but this therefore is like, now everything I said before, now this is what you guys can do as a result. It's one of my favorite passages. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, it's Holy of Holies Hawk, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, that is through the flesh. And, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, that's, he's talking about Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. We've been redeemed. We've been washed. Now what can we do? Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering then, since he who promised is faithful. Let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. There's a new age of the spirit now, which is empowering us. We're gonna talk about this more in the ascension, which comes into our hearts, into our minds and empowers our physical bodies to, to provoke one another to do good works, encourage one another with words of love to actually uh, bring that same life into the world that we see God breaking out of the holy holies to do, to bring life to the world by his manifest presence. God sends us his manifest presence and he does it through us moving forward. And it's the best, most thrilling thing there is in life. And when you lean into it and you find it, you'll find meaning and purpose and satisfaction and true joy. That's why we lean into the cross because there's so much blessing to be found here. I just gave you three things today. Continue to defamiliarize yourself with the cross. There's many, many more. Famous historians have, have called the, 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 the cross a, a thousand-sided diamond that you can go to it and see a different face of it each time you throw yourself on your knees in front of the cross. It's the most beautiful thing there is. It's the most powerful thing there is. The resurrection and the ascension, you can't have them without the cross. Next week we'll learn that you can't have the, um, the cross and the ascension without the resurrection. These all work together to, to produce a beautiful thing in the life of Jesus' followers. And, I, and we're seeing it happen in Seattle, and it's such a joy to be a part of it with all of you. And we're going to continue to see it happen as we continue to defamiliarize. We've got to just keep rolling up our sleeves and considering the gospel of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And as we do that, we will see God do incredible things in our midst like he already has done. We can be confident of that because he promises it here in his, in his word. Amen. All right, would you pray with me?